I do want to encourage you, they're going to be here after the service at the lunch that we're celebrating together, so I would encourage you to, to meet them, not just because they're awesome, but to come to that lunch so that we can feed you. Melissa's already mentioned that. We want a chance to celebrate together, but I'll let Dean talk about that at the end of the service before we get there, but I want to commend that to you as well. We want to be together and, and praise God together. Now, as familia, I want us to do something that we do every Sunday. I want us to sit under God's word and receive what God has for us this morning, expecting God to work in us by his spirit, to shape us like Jesus. And so this morning, we are wrapping up our series that we've entitled Love Unfiltered, where we've taken this really close look at, the, at this chapter in this book, 1 Corinthians 13, and, and how God defines love for his followers, how God defines love for this community of believers. And so here at the end of that series, what I'm going to do is I want us to actually read the entire chapter and take some time to, to run through God's definition of love as we've kind of been slow rolling through it, and then focus our time on the last half of that chapter. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to 1 Corinthians 13. If you're joining with us online, I would encourage you to do the same thing. Uh, I want us to stand as we read God's Word together. And remember, I'm going to read the whole chapter, but we're going to laser focus on the second half for most of the sermon. My turn to open my Bible, huh? All right, people of God, hear God's word from 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. It always protects always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. This is God's word. You may be seated. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the way in which you have revealed yourself in a book. We thank you that your spirit makes these words come alive to us. And this morning, as we sit under your word and submit to your word, may the words of my mouth, the preaching of your word, and the meditations of all of our hearts, the participation of every heart in this room, be acceptable, be a pleasing act of worship to you, our Lord, our rock, our redeemer. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. Well, in Livermore, California, a small incandescent light bulb watches over the fire trucks of the LPFD at night. 
burning at about 4 watts right now, down from its original 60. This little light of theirs has been burning for over almost 120 years at this point. Today, as it burns, it testifies to a time when products were built to last. In our day and age, the, the business world, and especially the tech world, is dominated by this business practice, I don't know if you've heard of it, called planned obsolescence. Marketing campaigns that are built to make you think that you need the next best thing because what you hold in your hand is not good enough anymore. Even though last year, it was the next best thing. Products that are designed not to last, to break down and require replacement rather than repair. I mean, light bulbs that last for a few hundred years, they're actually bad for business. But not everything in this world is designed to fail. Not everything in this world is designed not to last. Our text this morning calls us to a way of life that has been designed by God to outlast this present age. It is the way of love. And the way in which this text calls us to do that can be summarized like this. Christians must love no matter what because love lasts. In other words, the eternal nature of love is the argument that the Bible makes in this text for why we should be laser-focused on love as Christians here and now. Because when we love here and now, we are actually participating in eternity. We are in a very real way acting out heaven on earth. In these in-between times between Christ's first coming and his second coming, the practice of Christian love is the announcement of God's kingdom. It is the future invading the present. It is the thread that the world is supposed to trace through us all the way back to God, the creator who loves them. So here's how we're going to walk through this text to actually see how the Bible commends that to us, to tell us to love no matter what because love lasts. We're going to walk through this text and though we read that whole chapter, I already told you we're going to be in the second half of that chapter in verses 7 through 13. And God begins in verse 7 by expanding the definition of love he's given past normal human limits to talk about a limitless love. But he doesn't just do just that because then God actually expands the timelines beyond normal human timelines to talk about a love that will be perfected, a perfect love. And then after expanding our definition and our timeline, God does something at the very next verse after our chapter in 14 verse 1. I know I'm cheating. I'm moving past the text that I said we were going to be. But God actually moves past that text to connect this beautiful chapter on love to life within his community, within his people as the distinct way of life. In other words, he calls us to pursue love. A limitless love that will be one day perfect this kind of love, that's the love we should be showing, that we should be pursuing in the community of God's people. As we live in these in-between times, we love no matter what because love lasts. Because when God comes back to make everything right again, what won't need to be replaced, what actually has no next best thing, is love. His love working its way out among his people. So before we experience that expansion of our definition of love that, that we've been slow rolling through until this point, I want us to review the definition up until this point together. What is this love that God wants coursing through his people almost like electricity? Well, he begins by telling us in chapter 13, verse 4, that love is patient and love is kind. Love is able to bear up under the pressure of time without building up pressure that comes out harshly. Love knows how to endure. 
It knows how to express itself kindly in every situation, no matter what happens. Love also does not envy. Concerned with others, love does not fall into the trap of being consumed by others. It does not play the comparison game. Love doesn't even boast. It is not proud. Love focuses on others for their good, not to showboat or compare ranks or for our own good. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. Love rejects any temptation to use freedom as an excuse to shame others or behave inappropriately. It seeks the good of others with more intensity than the good of self. Love is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love drinks from the fountain of forgiveness rather than burn with the fire of anger. It refuses to build some kind of scoreboard. And instead of uh, uh, using the eraser of forgiveness rather than the marker of of self-righteous anger. In fact, God goes so far as to say his love, true biblical love, does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. It refuses to call evil good. It celebrates and enjoys God's ways, God's truth, and it does all of this without forgetting that it is also and especially patient and kind. This is the love of God, the love that should be among God's people, the love that should fill every single nerve ending within this community until we are all crackling with the energy of God's love in Christ. But God doesn't stop there at defining love, which brings us to the beginning of our passage. You see, the electricity of God's love stabilizes in verse 7 to be more than just a spark that zaps in a moment, but the power that keeps everything among God's people moving. Love always protects. It always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. You see, here at the end, God, through Paul's pen, piles characteristic upon characteristic upon characteristic as he's defining love. It's almost as if he's going to the edge of the boundary and breaking through whatever barriers have been built by human capabilities. There are no barriers or limits or restrictions to this kind of love, to the love that must course through God's people. This love is love always. Love that lives in the now with its eyes on the future, absolutely confident in God's promises, in God's purposes, in God doing what he said he would do able to live in whatever circumstance or situation comes because no matter what happens, the future is secure. With love like this, every present moment becomes just another chance to make that future invade this now, make it look a little bit more like heaven. Love always. But what does love always do? Well, the text tells us love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. So I'm going to slow down just like we've been doing in this series and go through each one of those to explain what what Paul is trying to get at here. Love always protects means that like a roof in a hailstorm, love protects by covering. Not covering up evil, but by handling whatever evil comes your way. Whatever chaos or uncertainty swells like a tornado or fear that rises like a flood, love protects. It bears up under the weight of whatever happens in this sin-broken world. I'll illustrate it like this. Uh, Some of you may not know that I'm not from around here. I'm not from these parts. I come from a land of oranges and alligators, Cuban food, and God-given sunshine, where it's always summer and never winter, and God smiles on us. But when I moved up here, I learned that not only did I have to learn how to engage with winter and all that comes with it, but I had to learn some winter maintenance. 
See, where I come from, you don't have to shovel. You don't have to scrape the ice. You need hurricane insurance, but that's a different conversation. But what I've learned since being up here is that there's even more winter maintenance than I've even experienced. From some people that live a little bit further north, I don't know if you have ever had the, the, the privilege of engaging in winter maintenance that is called roof shoveling. I've seen pictures of an ungodly amount of snow on someone's roof threatening to cave in the structure. I don't know why I came up here this far north, if that is one of the threats. But that's what love protects means, that the roof never threatens to cave in. Love always protects. Now, when I say that, I want to be clear to say that it's not that love pretends like evil is not real or that sin is not so bad. Love is not in the business of, of shielding all, uh, 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 any evil under this kind of default protection in order to allow more and more evil to happen. The whole definition of love needs to bear upon this definition. Love does not delight in evil. But love always protects that no matter how hard life gets, love will not abandon ship. It does not cave in. It is limitless in its ability to support each and every burden. Love always protects. Love always trusts. Love always has one eye on the future because love believes that God is telling the truth. And because love believes that, love has the ability to surrender suspicion, right? Not deny wisdom or do away with discernment, but reject the kind of suspicion that assumes the worst of people. Love is not gullible, but love is not cynical. It is always ready to give the benefit of the doubt to someone, even while it is also being grounded in reality. It never believes someone to be too far gone. It always trusts in the far-reaching mercy and grace of God in Christ. And never loses faith that God will be just. That in the end, his justice, his goodness will win over the evil of humanity. And that God also is in the business of saving people. It is trust both in God's redemptive power that he is able to save and change even the worst of sinners. Like Paul describes himself in another letter to another church. But that it also is trust, unwavering trust in God's justice that he will never let evil go unpunished. This faith, this trust keeps love grounded even as it expresses itself in kindness. You see, I don't know if you've noticed this, but if you don't have trust in a relationship, it's really easy. It's almost like it's the default of us as humans to become suspicious of each other, to become cynical with each other, to assume everybody has an agenda or an angle that they have to play. We fail to love because we fail to trust. And in specific, we fail to trust in God for everyone that we relate to. Again, I want to be clear. Love always trust does not mean that love rejects wisdom. It means love acts out a trust in God and his power to work in others. Love always trusts. Love also always hopes. It hopes in the justice of God, the goodness of God, the promises that God has made, that he is who he says he is. He will do what he said he would do. It is confident not in people, but in the God who made people and the God who rescues people with his love. You see, no one is too far gone for the love of God because love always hopes. Love finds its confidence in and aligns its expectation with God himself. I'm not talking about some flimsy hope that just hopes it will be okay in the end. It's not about some sunny disposition that is always positive and, and kind of seems out of touch with reality. The hope of love is hope in God, which means it is aligned with God's character. And it means that failure is not an option. 
That failure is not final. That what is final is the victory of God's grace. We hope for what we do not see, knowing that one day we will see him as he is. Our hope will be realized. Love always hopes. Love also always perseveres. It has limitless patience. In the same way that love has limitless capacity to support, to protect, so love also has limitless patience to do that supporting. It will never give up. It is patient, but not with the waiting room kind of patience where you're just kind of waiting for something to happen, the doctor to finally come out hours later. It is patient with battlefield kind of patience, right? Refusing to be overwhelmed, rejecting any discouragement. Love is on purpose, filled with courage in the middle of everything. Whatever suffering comes, whatever difficulty shows up, it is constant even when everything around it is chaos. It never gives up. Love always perseveres. Love always protects. It always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. But this does not mean that love always looks the same in every situation. No, by God's grace, love creatively engages people where they are and as they are with the reality of what they will be, who God has called them to be, who God has made them to be. It innovates on each relationship with the goal of being a clear path for God's spirit to transform people by the power of his love. But it always is love. This is the beauty of God's description of love. What I've loved about this, uh, this series that we've done in 1 Corinthians 13, because in this chapter, God's description of love does two things at the same time. Right? It invites us to question our love while also drawing us into his love. It holds up this, this beautiful gem that is love and, and invites us to examine ourselves where we're actually convicted by our own reflection, but even then we still see at the center of the gem there's, there's someone with perfect love. So the question for us this morning is, have you examined your life during this series to allow God's word to correct you, to change you, to make you into who he has called you to be as a Christian, i.e., Loving. One easy way to do that, at least for me, is to replace the word love with your own name and then go through the list. Does this kind of love characterize you? So for your own uh, pleasure, I have put my name in there and asked the questions. Is Eric patient? Am I kind? Do I refuse to envy, to boast? Am I proud? Do I dishonor others in the way that I speak or act? Do I seek after only my good? How short is my fuse? How well do I track the wrongs of others in order to bring them up later, whether I'm trying to or not? It just kind of, does it come out? Do I even, in the way that I act, call evil good? Or even worse, enjoy evil and whatever sin and temptations come my way? Do I struggle to celebrate God's truth? Do I always protect, always trust, always hope, always persevere? I'll save you from having to answer publicly. I'll answer it for you. No, I don't do all those things all the time. I'm not perfect. I struggle in each of these areas. But the question in this text does not stop at how we measure up. That's the grace of this passage, the grace of this gospel. There is another name that fills these blanks completely and perfectly who not only shows us what it's like to live out this love, but actually made it possible by going first. 
by sending his spirit to change us with his love. You see his name there at the end. It's not Eric who never fails. Who is it, church? Jesus never fails. It is Jesus who is patient. Jesus who is kind. Who does not envy, does not boast, is not proud. It is Jesus who does not dishonor others. Jesus who did not seek his own good. The one who is not easily angered. Who keeps no record of wrongs because the cross has eliminated any record of wrongs. He does not delight in evil. He rejoices with the truth. Jesus always protects. Jesus always trusts. Jesus always hopes. He always perseveres. Jesus never fails. Yes, this text does call us for self-examination. To ask if we are characterized by this kind of love and if this community that we are in is coursing with that electricity of this kind of love. But it does not ask the question without giving us the gospel. By the end of this description, the bounds of normal human limits have been all but destroyed. And there is really no hope of any human in their sinful state to actually live out this kind of love. Love that sacrifices and gives up power and actually puts itself in vulnerable situations in relationship with people. And opened itself up to be known. It's this kind of love that is hard to understand. Hard to grasp. Hard to even accept. But it is the only true kind of love. The kind of love that we were made for and that deep down we all actually really want. Love without pretense. Love, unconditional love that rides with us in the good and in the bad. Love that transforms Love that was seen dying on a cross in Calvary. Love that was bleeding for us. Love that forgave. Love that was laid in a grave. Love that was silent for three days. And then love that was raised. One writer puts it like this. It says, like Christ on the cross, love endures scorn, failure, ingratitude. And at the end, shines out the light of Easter. Love never ends. That's the beauty of this chapter, that the definition builds up until here in verse 8, love never fails. In his next letter to the Corinthians, Paul writes this, he says, the love of Christ compels us, and he explains it does this because we are convinced that one, being Jesus, died for all. And when we believe that, symbolized in our baptism, we die to the sin that is killing us, we are raised to new life, and, and it's this life that is marked by the Spirit and characterized by love. Because it is life that began with that love in Christ. Life that as we wait for his return is still marked by us growing in that limitless love. This is love that loves no matter what. The love we are to have within the community of God's people that is limitless because it is his spirit who is empowering us to love with that love. But we love like that because love lasts. Because one day it will be perfected. One day it will be complete which is what the rest of our text actually explains. Look at verse 8 with me. Love never fails. It never ends. It can't be defeated. It will never be brought down. It is core to God's character and it will not change. It is an always kind of love. Like we sang last week in In Christ Alone, the love of Christ stands firm through the fiercest drought and storm. And so Paul continues. He starts to explain this. He says, where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. 
Now, I've said this before when we first opened this series. This isn't a series on spiritual gifts. There are other texts that talk about that, but we did touch on it at the beginning because it mattered in that text. And here again, we encountered that very real issue in the life of the Corinthian church, where they had created this hierarchy of gifts that God gave his church for the purpose of building up his church. Instead, what they were doing was tearing down his church. And so Paul takes the gifts that the Corinthians held so close, these instruments of power, and he contrasts them with love. Specifically, he contrasts love's never-failing nature with the temporary nature of his gifts, of God's gifts. You see, at some point, Paul explains, God will not need to mediate his presence or communication in his church because someday, someday when he returns, we get to experience him directly. He will talk with us face-to-face like friends together. And so the things that these Corinthians were fighting about, these, these gifts that they had ranked in importance and used as a way to gain power over, over, over others, these gifts that they considered to be like this leverage are reduced by Paul in this text to temporary measures, which begs the question, why in the world are you chasing them so hard when love is what will actually last? Each of the words Paul uses here, ceases, be stilled, pass away, they're all verbs telling us not just that these, these gifts are going to disappear kind of into the ether, but that God himself will end these gifts because he'll finally be back. He will actually be able to once again walk with us like he walked with Adam and Eve in Genesis. He will dry every tear and every imperfect but appropriate for this time way that he interacted with his people will be ended. Because he'll be with us. But what will not be ended, Paul says, is love. Love no matter what, because love lasts. Because eternity will be filled with opportunities to love. Because when we love, we bring a little bit of then into the now. We piece together the fabric of sin-broken reality, and God's love and his kingdom begin to shine through. Through our love, the future invades the present. And God's gospel continues his transforming work through his church. Now, don't lose me here. Paul here talking about some things. He gets into some illustrations that I want to run through. In verse 11, he starts with one illustration. He gives us two. The first is from childhood to adulthood. Now, Paul says, when I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. Now, growing up, we called my abuelo, my, my grandfather on my mother's side, Papu. And Papu, we had nicknames for every single person in our family, but Papu was brilliant. And he loved to laugh. I mean, he wrote economics textbooks. He ran this public library in the Dominican Republic. He was also very clever. And so one of his trips from the Dominican Republic, when I was around 12 years old, he decided that he was going to use his powers uh, against me. He was going to help my parents help me to grow up. You see, almost a teenager at that point, I still carried around with me, and this is super embarrassing. I didn't even tell Jocelyn that I was going to do this. I still carried around with me this pile of security blankets. You know how kids have like a favorite blankie? I had 20 of them. I was 12. My parents didn't correct me yet. They had a hard time encouraging me to grow up. Well, Papu took this challenge on himself and decided that he was going to offer me his $20 for my 20 blankets. And after checking to make sure that they weren't Dominican pesos and that they were actually dollars, I took the deal. It's a sweet deal. Until bedtime came. There were not enough tears to sway my grandfather, to take his money back. He forced me to put my childish ways behind me. And in the same way that it was inappropriate for me to continue to walk around with 20 security blankets into middle school, 
Paul says all these spiritual gifts will be inappropriate when God comes back. We won't need them anymore. He will be with us. We'll be able to actually speak with him face to face. I'll give you another illustration just to make my point. Jocelyn and I took the girls for the first time to a hotel, like on a trip, almost a year ago now. The first time that we had done that and the girls had slept in the same room. We put them to bed at a normal time. Seven o'clock. It's not like we could leave the hotel room to go hang out, to go to dinner. And so laying in each bed, I was with one and she was with the other, we're texting each other, talking. And it just felt so weird. I know you're right across the room, but I can't talk right now because I want these babies to sleep. In the same way that that's unusual, it will be unusual for God to continue to try to communicate to us through his gifts when he's right there next to us. That's what Paul is saying here in this text. We'll speak face to face with him. When Christ returns, we won't need some gift to mediate his conversation. These gifts are appropriate for now, but they were, they're temporary. Someday they won't be necessary, but love will always be necessary. Now Paul keeps going because he wants to make sure we get the point, and he uses another illustration in this text. And this time he contrasts the difference between God's indirect communication right now with the direct communication later. Look at verse 12. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. From growing up to looking in a mirror, Paul contrasts the experience of now versus then, right? Now we see like this, then we'll see like that. Now we see like in a mirror. Why is Paul using the imagery of a mirror? It's not just because he's clever. Historically, the Corinthians were actually known for making these amazing bronze mirrors. So this imagery would resonate with them. They would be able to see what he's talking about. And he contrasts the difference between seeing someone indirectly in a reflection and then directly with being face to face. And as great as these mirrors were, they were still not the same as being with someone face to face, right? Mirrors are limited by the edges. They're still flipped images when you look at them. They're still an indirect experience versus sitting across from someone and having a conversation in a direct experience, unrestricted by the edges of any kind of frame. The mirror illustration is the ancient equivalent of what we had to do this past year and having to work through Zoom for so long. It's good. It helps us connect, but it's not the same. Yeah, there's a lot of amens for that. It's opened up a whole world of possibilities in terms of meaning, but it's, it's just not the same as sitting in the same room and talking with each other. Even as groups try to meet online, it's just not the same. It's helpful for now, but it's not what we want. And in the same way, God is saying, hey, this is for now. There's something for later. This will change. But there's something that will not change, and you need it now just as much as you'll need it later. And that is love. Why is Paul hitting all this so hard? Well, look at the next half of verse 12. I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. He makes these illustrations. He's trying to do all this, but say like, hey, right now we have a piece of the puzzle and it's all well and good, but there is some day when the puzzle will be filled by the one who sees the whole picture. Yesterday, I used, uh, my, my oldest, Lucia, and I did a puzzle. And it was great. I was helping her, whatever. What was incredibly frustrating, and Jocelyn said, I don't think that puzzle is real, is that every piece in the puzzle was cut out the same way. Meaning that like, you match up the pictures and they fit, but the pictures don't actually match up. It was very annoying. And it was a kid's puzzle. 
What's happening here is that Paul is saying that someday all the pieces are going to match up perfectly. You will be able to see the whole picture. God sees the whole picture now. You can't see it now. There are gaps in your puzzle. But someday, all those questions will be answered. All those fears will be met. All those anxieties will be taken care of because we'll be with him. But we trust in him, not because we know everything. That will happen someday, but because he knows us fully. Do you get the logic? We know in part right now. We don't see the whole picture. Someday we will see the whole picture, but we trust in the one who sees the whole picture now. And not just the whole picture, but sees us now and loves us, which is, which is both hopeful and freeing. Hopeful because the one who, who loves us, loves us while knowing us fully. Isn't that crazy? That he knows every single thing about us, top to bottom, through and through, completely, inside and out, and yet he loves us with the kind of love he just described here. That is the one we trust in in this moment. It is hopeful because he won't leave any questions unanswered. It is freeing because he knows us completely. And in that day, marked by love, we will be face to face with the one who knows us fully, and then we will know. That is the kind of love that Paul is talking about. In these verses, and all these illustrations, Paul is working tirelessly to separate in our minds things like spiritual gifts and things that we do to build up the church and love, to put them in different categories, to reject the idea that we can just add love to our Christian backpack and keep moving forward as if we've got some new skill that we've acquired, to embrace the reality that love surrounds everything we do as Christians, that love is the backpack itself. That love, true Christian love, is what carries the weight of everything we do within this family. Love that cries in our grief and our suffering. Love that repairs doors and windows as much as it repairs relationships broken by sin. Love that watches each other's kids and celebrates God's blessing in each other's lives. Love that eats together and prays together and serves together and, yes, even plays together. Love that doesn't run from conflict but steps into it with the confidence of God in Christ and in this relationship. Love that is confident in God's justice and his hope and hope in his work among his people. Love that is vulnerable about weaknesses because we know that we need each other. And the reality is, like I repeat a lot of the times up here, we already know the worst about each other. That we are bad enough that Christ had to die for us. And we already know the best thing about each other. That he loved us enough to do it. Love that displays itself in this community in a hundred different ways, creatively thinking about how it's going to show love outside of Sunday. Familia that has been given to me and to each other by God. We have an opportunity in this moment as a community to rebuild, to be who God has called us to be, to love each other outside of the hour and a half that we spend together on a Sunday morning. An opportunity to, to love but that opportunity requires you to take a chance. To take a chance on each other. A chance to love and be loved. To invite people over for dinner that you aren't sure about and play dates. And to step into the vulnerability of a new relationship. It's a lot easier to make new friends when you're a kid walking into school. I don't know about you, but I find it hard to make friends as an adult because you have to do the, hey, will you be my, just invite someone over for dinner. We have to take a chance even in getting together to serve a neighbor, to think up, again, a million different ways to display the love of God with each other and with others. 
Paul ends this chapter with a reminder, right? I got really practical, but Paul ends this chapter with a reminder to remind the community of God's people what it should look like now and what it will look like then. And he says, these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. You see, in the here and now, we are a community that must be characterized by faith. Faith in God that he has forgiven us of our sins, that he accepts us in Christ. Faith that he is good even when we can't see his goodness. Someday that faith is going to be made sight. And we'll no longer need faith. In the here and now, we as a community need to be characterized by hope. Hope that, that is certain in Christ. Hope in his resurrection that, that is a precursor to our resurrection. Hope that the future is invading in the now and that someday we'll be fully here, that his kingdom is coming, that God is coming and he is going to make his home with us and remake our home to be with him. Hope that will someday be realized. And we'll no longer need to hope. In the here and now as a community, we need to be characterized by love. Love for each other, love for God, love for the, the, the people that, that society has said uh, don't matter. Love that stands side, side by side with faith and hope. But that love does not stop at eternity. It continues on into eternity. It will characterize his kingdom through and through forever and ever, which means that when we love in the here and now, we're not just doing something that will someday change. We are in the here and now living like we're living in eternity. I've toyed with using this uh, um, phrase, and I don't want to diminish what we're doing here and now when I say this, but in some ways, loving here and now is the dress rehearsal for God's kingdom. We get to participate here and now in what he is doing. The greatest of these is love, because love will never end. The kind of love that was seen on a cross in Calvary. The kind of love that is now sitting on a throne, and the kind of love that will come as a king. Perfect love that is known by another name. Jesus, a love that pursues. It's not just a limitless love, and it's not just a perfect love that will someday be perfected, but it's a love that has pursued you, a love that has pursued me, a love that has chased us all the way down to earth, a love that climbed up on a cross and then into a grave and through resurrection in order to save us. Like the old hymn says, it is love unknown, my Savior's love to me, love to the loveless shown that they might lovely be. Love has pursued us, and so love calls us to pursue others. And this is where we go to 1 Corinthians 14.1, because right at the beginning of the next chapter, Paul begins by this. It says, follow the way of love. Pursue love. And he continues in the rest of the chapter, he continues to talk about spiritual gifts in the life of the church. He, he doesn't even throw those out in the place of love, even after all the things he's been comparing. He goes so far as to tell the Corinthians to eagerly desire these gifts, but he takes the definition of love that he has unfolded and expanded in this chapter, and he condenses it back into one word, and he calls us, he calls God's people to keep in step with love, with the kind of love I just described, the love that has a name, the love of Jesus. And so as we examine our own hearts this morning to see whether or not we are following this way of love, we have to always remember that we always fill the blanks in with the name of Jesus before we fill in the blanks with our own name. It is not until we realize that he filled in that blank first that we can even begin to wrap our minds and our lives around the love that God is calling his people into. Because love is not defined by some dictionary entry. Love is defined by a person. And his name is Jesus. 
And so we pursue love like love pursued us. We follow the way of love here and now because it is the way of love in eternity. It never ends. It never fails. It is the mark of God's people here and now, then and there, because it was the mark of Jesus. The call is clear for us. So I said it from the very beginning. Love no matter what, because love lasts. Love that always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love that is limitless in its weight-holding capacity and its patience and its ability to withstand whatever the sin-rocked world throws at it because it already saw the worst of it at the cross. Love that never fails and will never end, that will not cease, will not pass away, will be perfected when the God, the King, returns and makes everything right again. Love that lasts. Perfect love. That by God's grace is at work within us as a community here and now. Bringing the future into now as we hope, as we wait in faith for his return. Not waiting, sitting down, but waiting actively for God the King to come back. And so we pursue love because love pursued us. We love no matter what because we know, we trust that that love lasts. It continues on into eternity. Here and now is the beginning of the rest of our lives. And so TVC, my, my prayer for us is that we would continue to step into that kind of love, not to just kind of do the right things and make sure we got that checked off the list, but because we're following a Savior who went first. Would you pray with me that we as a community might actually do that here in Streamwood? Let's pray. God of eternity, we are grateful that you enter time and space in pursuit of us because you love us. Your grace and mercy in Christ draw us to you. We've never experienced anything like this kind of love. And so we pray that you might continue to shape us with that love. Help us to be creative about ways in which we express that love within this community. To give us eyes to see our brothers and our sisters as you see them. Help us to step further into relationships with one another with the uniting power of your gospel. We ask that the electricity of your love would course through us as a community, empowering us to be who you have called us to be. We ask for your spirit to enable and empower us to love like you love, to love supernaturally, to love with our identity and confidence fixed on you and an others-focused posture. We trust you to be at work among us, spirit. God, would you let it be so. Amen.